Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we review our favorite RPGs, collectible card games, MMOs, video games, PC games, and bring up interesting topics and things that we'd like to share with everyone. Sit back and enjoy the show. This is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Guys, you all having a good time? That's what we like to hear. <laughs> yeah, I am. Except for breakfast. That was not. What was that? <laughs> it happens at so many cons, you know. They have a, rest- a restaurant that presumably serves like regular breakfast, but then the fans arrive and they say, no, you, you, you have to eat this buffet here with these four tired looking things. Um, so th- this panel uh, is, is just billed as a, an hour with me, I guess. So uh, what I thought I'd do here is just uh, sort of ramble incoherently for, uh, for a bit. And uh, then our, our moderator here will ask a, a few questions and then we'll probably... There we go. Okay, thank you. Uh, normally panels start with introductions, but does anybody not know who this is? <laughs> what does the RR stand for? My middle names. <laughs> so we've moved all the walls, and that has revealed more chairs. I, I've been told that this convention is very uh, strict about chairs. No standing or sitting in the aisles as you see at some conventions. You must have your butt in a chair. We, we have a very strict fire marshal. Other conventions that have been here... Can you hear me? Room? I can get it. Oh, wait, we got it. Scott. You, someone talk. Okay. Hi. <laughs> hello, hello. Other guy talk. Okay. I can talk to you. Hi again. Okay. Can you hear us now? Suspicious porcupine. No pops, no S's. Oh. Okay. So, so who, who am I? The point, point was raised of who am I. That's actually an interesting point because uh, I've been thinking about it a lot myself lately. <laughs> Not only who am I, but why am I? Why am I the way I, I am? And uh, this has been put in light for me by the recent election that we may have had. We have had this election. Um, and uh, I uh, have expressed some opinions on my blog, which of course has gotten me a lot of uh, um, attention and uh, support in some ways, but also criticism, and uh, there were some interesting debates about it, and it's caused me to think about why I have some of the attitudes that I have, uh, some of the political views I have. Um, and I, in reflecting on it, I think a lot of it is because I'm a science fiction guy. 
Yeah, I'm known for fantasy these days mostly, but of course, fantasy when I was growing up was like part of science fiction. Science fiction was much bigger. They broke branches of imaginative literature, as I see them. And in the, I was born in 1948, so I largely started reading comic books and then book books in the 1950s. I was reading the science fiction of the 1950s, the comic books of the 50s, and of course, before the science fiction of the 40s and the 30s, which uh, when I could get that. And there wasn't much fantasy around then, not, not until there was Conan and then Tolkien came along in the early 60s. But uh, mostly it was science fiction. And I wrote a lot of science fiction. I still love science fiction. I hope to write more of it one of these days. Um, but um, I grew up reading that stuff. And I look back on it now, and, and I think it's, it's one, it's not the sole factor, but it's one of the factors that really shaped my political attitudes and where I stand in a culture war that is now dividing this nation and indeed the, the world. I don't know if you uh, guys, uh, and I know Tuscan is a very old convention, because evidently I was guest of honor here in 1980, <laughs> which I, I hardly remember. But, uh, um, but I don't know if you ever had Gordon R. Dixon here. Gordy Dixon, did he ever come to a Tuscan? Does anybody, any of the old timers remember? We, we weren't able to get him. No? Gordy was a, a great guy, of course, a terrific science fiction writer. Um, and a lot of fun at, at conventions and at parties. He, he was known to imbibe a little. <laughs> or, or a lot. This, this thing is really getting annoying here. I think it has to be turned back down. Uh, <laughs> um, but the thing, the thing that Gordy uh, never actually wrote, or, or, or never wrote because of the market forces at the time, but visualized, uh, he had this grand idea for a series of nine books that was going to be his magnum opus. And what he wanted to do was write three books of historical fiction, three books of contemporary fiction set in, you know, the 50s and 60s, the, you know, the, the time that we were living in then when he came up with this scheme, and three books of science fiction. And the nine books would all relate together, and the theme of the nine books would be the moral evolution of mankind. Because Gordy believed that there was a moral evolution going on. And, uh, you know, in, in, he would show in the historical fiction how things that were considered perfectly normal and natural uh, in the past, things like patriarchy and racism and slavery and war, um, you know, they were not considered evils. They were considered like part of the world that was. And the heroes engaged in these things. You know, good men owned slaves and, uh, you know, engaged in these things. But over time, just as mankind and, and people had evolved, uh, there was a moral evolution going on. And the attitudes of the contemporary were different, and the future would be still different. And it was a grand scheme, and I think I was one of the people, Gordy gave many interviews about this, he talked about his plan, but like everybody else, he had mortgages to build, uh, to pay, and, and all that. So he, he wrote the three science fiction novels, and then they wanted more science fiction novels, and he wrote them, and they wanted more science fiction novels, and he wrote them. He never got around to writing the three historical novels, or the three contemporary novels, so his grand scheme was never carried out, but I've always remembered him talking about it, and I think he made a very persuasive case for, for this idea of moral evolution. And I'm someone, and you can tell from my fantasy where I steal unashamedly from history, um, that I read a lot of history too. And, and I think there's evidence for what Gordy described. Now, history is not a straight line. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just go forward. It, it, it goes forward three steps, and then it goes back two steps, and then it goes forward three steps. We can look at history, and, and there are some amazing, ugly parts in it. I mean, I, I think in the early 20th century, um, they'd had almost a century of peace in Europe, and, and uh, you know they really thought they had gotten somewhere and, and arrived at a new and kind of more civilized thing, but then 
boy, then World War One happened, and that kind of threw a monkey wrench into it and destroyed the, the the society. And then after World War One, things got really funky. And then of course the Nazis happened, and you know a lot of people looked at it afterwards. How the fuck could the Nazis happen? I thought well, we were really better than that, but uh, maybe we weren't. Maybe that was just one of the step backwards after five steps forward or whatever. So history is not a straight line and all that. But I think by and large it's a straight line if you look at it, and and the straight line is predicated to my mind, on humanity coming together um, and becoming one people. And I, my attitude towards this, I really looked to think, were shaped by the science fiction I read when I was young by people like Isaac Asimov and Robert A. Heinlein and Edmund Hamilton and, and all of these guys. That, you know, the, the dream of, of going out to the planets and going to the stars was a dream for humanity. Now, you can look at the stories they wrote and said, well, most people in them are kind of like white male American guys. And yeah, maybe they were, but they weren't labeled as white male American guys. They were called Earthmen or Terrans. We were all like one person. And there were some writers who with this, even in the context of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and 60s. I was rereading a, a Paul Anderson novel recently, and Paul was uh, another terrific writer of, about this. He, he uh, you know, he was politically conservative, um, but he was also very much a humanist and, and, and like a globalist, and in a lot of his societies there are like Polynesians and Maori characters and uh, you know, characters from Africa. Skin color didn't seem to matter to him even. And, and he reflects in his, his variety of Earthmen. He may have a spaceship crew that contains a Maori character and a Chinese character and, a, and a, an American character. But the, the political divisions are all gone. That's just their ancestry and their culture. They're, they're, they're all part of Earth. They're all part of whatever it was, the Polytechnic League, or Asimov's first empire and all that. And we're facing off aliens. There's this thread there. And I, reading all these stories when I was young, I think really got me thinking that way. Uh, thinking that we are one common humanity and we have more in common with each other. There are more things that uh, we share than that divide us. Um, and I think that's why I have some of the political attitudes I do. I, I don't really comprehend some of the arguments I've gotten um, recently on some of the issues that, that divide us. Um, you know, the, about six months ago, I, I blogged about the Syrian refugees and why we have a humanitarian duties to uh, let in the, the Syrian refugees, as many as we can take, because um, they're women and they're children and, and they're men too, and they're trying to get away from the war and trying to save their families and they're in dire need. And that's what we're all about here in America, um, you know, Give us your tired and your poor and your huddled masses yearning to be free, and also, you know, the people who don't want to be tortured and killed and bombed. <laughs> Even aside of yearning to be free, yearning to be alive is a powerful uh, incentive too. And I remember I got in one debate with a guy who said, "Well, you know, some of them might be ISIS spies, and uh, they're they're terrorists. They're coming in." And well, yeah, some of them probably are. Um, but most of them aren't, and in fact there's probably a thousand who aren't, or ten thousand who aren't, for everyone who is. Um, and uh, the, the guy I was debating with said, well, yeah, I don't care, but what, what if I don't want to let in even one? Um, you know, what, what if that one comes in and he kills 23 people in a, you know, in a, a terrorist act, uh, you know? Um, and I said, well, yeah, then we take that risk, but uh, number one, all the previous wave of immigrants have had some bad guys in them too. You know, I'm descended from immigrants, from Italian immigrants, from Irish immigrants. Well, the Irish immigrants had a few terrorists in them too. These people who were working for the Fenians and raising money and sending it back to, uh, to attack the British, they were there too. 
And uh, the Italian immigrants, uh, most of them were perfectly hardworking guys, but they were the ones who were like the, the mafia. You heard of the mafia? Uh, <laughs> so there's always some bad guys in any group you let in. There's no, there's no group you can let in how much you vet them who are like all good and all the time and everybody is a saint. Um, but you have to take the risk, right? We're, we're led to the free and home to brave. Um, and the guy I was debating with said something. He said, well, I don't care. You know, if, if one American life uh, is lost because we let in someone we shouldn't, that, um, then you know, the blood is going to be on your hands and the hands of President Obama and whoever lets them in. And that really struck me, the, the way he phrased it, one American life, because it's clear that he didn't read a lot of science fiction. He, he's thinking of American lives. I say, okay, so what you're saying here is that one American life is worth 100,000 Syrian lives, or is more important to that. Um, and it really clarified why maybe as a science fiction fan, my thought is different. You know, I, I see these people who are ranking what they are when they talk about their own identity. And they say, well, I'm, you know, I'm an American first and a Republican second and a Arizonan third or whatever it is and a member of the Lions Club fourth and, uh, you know, etc. Or some of them put Christian ahead of American. Um, anyway, there's these, these rankings here. And I thought about that. And I'm, I'm not an American first, and maybe because I read science fiction, I'm a Terran first. I'm a human being first. And I have this sympathy for other human beings, no matter what side of the giant ice wall they happen to be born on. <laughs> and I think I can see this reflected in my, in my work, and some of that you know, not all of that comes from science fiction. I mean, obviously there were other influences on my life too that were important. Um, I was born to a family in Bayonne, New Jersey, a very blue-collar family. My father was unemployed for a long period of time uh, in, during my formative years. Well, it was only like a year and a half, but it seemed like 50 years, you know, when you're a kid. Uh, so we were just living on his unemployment checks and we were living in a federal housing project. It was an integrated project, so you know we had uh, we had other people in there. We had black people, we had uh, Jewish people. Um, we didn't have many Muslims because there weren't any around then. But we we did have a variety of different flavors of Catholic, which Bayonne mostly was: the Polish Catholic, the Italian Catholic, the Irish Catholics. Um, in those days, a mixed marriage was when an Irish Catholic married an Italian Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> which was, you know, like my parents. Uh, and, of course, that, that's a powerful influence, too, that sets your mind. So I didn't, I didn't tend to think of, like, Jews as being something. I thought of Mark Shapiro, who lived in the apartment upstairs, and his older brother, Eric, who was, like, the coolest guy I knew, and, um, you know, always had girls and stuff like that. And, and I, thought, I didn't think of... Uh, black people or Negroes, as we called them, and them as a, like separate. I thought of uh, my friend Skipper Baker and his sister Dolores, who was my, my sister's best friend for a certain period of time. And, uh, you know, they went to school with us. They played with us. They were all there. They were all, we were all like people together. So that was a powerful influence, too. That's the value of uh, kind of integration and people living with each other and coming on. You become people. You don't become these broad classifications, these uh, generalizations. But science fiction was a big part of that, too, because in science fiction I read about other things. You know, I read the Tom Corbett Space Cadet series. Um, was a, you know, the, the juvenile series I read first. Carrie Rockwell, which was a pseudonym, of course, eight books about uh, Tom Corbett, the Space Cadet, and the Polaris crew. Um, and you look back at it now and you say, well, it's all like white guys. Yeah, yeah, it was all white guys. But one of them was a Venusian and uh, Astro. And uh, even though Astro was like a white guy, um, he got a lot of shit for being Venusian. You know, oh, you Venusians, they all smell bad, and uh, do you really have webbed feet? And, you know, he got a lot of shit. And his friends, Tom Corbett and Roger Manning, 
had to stand up for their, their friend Astro, who was the the, uh, the astrogator or the, uh, the engineer on the ship. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think the science was rigorous. I think Astro was down on the engine deck where he was shoveling uranium into the uranium <laughs> furnace. But <laughs> but nonetheless, it was like a lesson in in, in prejudice and uh, accepting people who are different from ourselves. So all of that, all of that helped. I think shaped the way I am, and I'm glad it did because I like, I like that, and I, I like these attitudes, and I like the fact that science fiction has always been on. I don't know. I guess you could call it the progressive side of the agenda, but you could also call it, to my mind, the humane side of the agenda. But even some of the people. I mean, we think of Heinlein as this arch conservative because he did become kind of militaristic and somewhat conservative in his later life. But number one, he, he was never really conservative. He was sort of a libertarian, and he was extremely liberal on some matters, like sexual matters. He, and he had women on his starships. He had women engineers and women starship captains and women soldiers when nobody else was doing that. I think it's safe to say that Heinlein did not believe that marriage was just between a man and a woman. No, no. Heinlein believed in, uh, you know, what at, at various points was called free love, um, and later open relationships, and later, like, it's polyamory and, and so forth. But uh, he believed in that in 1912 or something like that when he was getting married. Nobody else believed in that then. It was pretty, pretty uh, daring stuff. But he also. Had, had black characters, you know, it's easy to lose sight when we look at Starship Troopers, that Juan Rico, the hero of Starship Troopers, is Philippine with brown skin, in a book that he wrote in like 1958 and, and 59. Um, so, you know, Heinlein was out there, and he was also, he was a, a, a Democrat, a, a, not only a liberal Democrat, but sort of a radical Democrat. He ran for Congress um, in California, who lost, but he was part of the Upton Sinclair campaign, End Poverty in California, which was well to the left of the New Deal. Um, and he, uh, you can read some of his letters um, when the first atomic bomb was exploded after World War at the end of World War II. And, of course, Heinlein had wanted to fight in World War II. He was an Annapolis graduate. He was very patriotic and all that. But when that first atomic bomb came off, he wrote to some of the other science fiction with him saying, you know, this is going to be our destruction. What we have to do, this means we really have to come together as one world. We really have to join together. And otherwise, this atomic bomb is going to destroy us. What we should do is we should give the secrets of the atomic bomb to the United Nations, which was just forming, and we should make them the world's policemen, and only the United Nations would have the atomic bomb in order to um, police the world. Now, the United Nations didn't turn out to be quite what I think its founders envisioned, and I think later, later than that was in 1945 that Heinlein was espousing those sentiments. Obviously, by 1960s and 70s, he had changed considerably. Um, but the fact that he did have those opinions, I think, was was interesting. And uh, indeed, you read some of Heinlein's future history, and he's very prescient about some of the political changes that would be going through. Um, I hope he's not too prescient about the rise of Nehemiah Scudder. Um, although recently I began to think maybe he was right about that too. Uh, and we'll probably find out in the next few years, but I hope not. Um, you know, sometimes people make predictions about the future and where we're going and they attach certain dates to it or it's assumed that there's dates, and then it doesn't happen on schedule, and people say, oh, they were wrong. Uh, I, I don't think that's always true. I think sometimes just the timing is wrong. I think, you know, people now say Malthus was wrong about the problems of population growth because it didn't happen exactly the way it says. Malthus was not wrong, he just got the timing wrong. 
Population growth will still overwhelm this planet and destroy all of us if it's allowed to continue unchecked. And people say Heinlein was wrong in that 1945 thing when he said this atomic bomb thing is going to destroy us all if, if we don't all get together and come together as one world. And um, then we can look back and even Heinlein said, well, I guess I was wrong about that. Well, no, you weren't wrong about that, Bob. That was right. Um, it just hasn't happened yet, but it, it will happen, you know, it will happen. We avoided the big World War III with the Soviet Union, but as more and more countries get more and more atomic bombs, and, and I don't know how you stop that, you can try to stop it, you can delay it with treaties and things like that, but it, it's like knowledge, and it, knowledge has a way of spreading, you can't keep it secret, and, you know, it used to be one country had the atomic bomb, then two, now we're up to like, what, 12 or something like that? And it's not gonna stay at 12, it's, they're gonna be more. And crazy countries like North Korea have it. That is a destruction that's waiting for us all, uh, regardless of the timetable, I was right about that. So these are some of the things that inform my own thinking and, uh, Heinlein also gave a speech at the, at the third World Science Fiction Convention where he was talking about what makes science fiction fans, writers and readers, different from other people, what we would now call mundanes, although that's sort of a... <laughs> and his theory was it was a capacity for somebody called time binding. Uh, the ability to think seriously about uh, far future and past events and rather than just the stuff that's immediately in front of them. Um, and I think that's a good point. There's a certain amount of validity to that. At least I, I see that reflected in myself and some of my friends. I mean, as I watched this political campaign for the presidency go down this year, there were many things about it that horrified me. <laughs> but one of the things, and, and you know, you've all read a million postmortems about it, we've all been sunken in this for, for years. Um, but one of the things that really struck me is like nobody was talking about global warming. We had three debates and there was not a single question about global warming. You know, they, at one point Hillary said Donald doesn't believe in global warming and he said wrong. Um, on the other hand, he has said that he doesn't believe in global warming and he thinks it's a hoax by the Chinese. So, uh, um, and many of the people on that side don't believe in global warming. But global warming is happening whether you believe in it or not. Um, the scientific community is there and being a time binder and a science fiction guy, um, people are looking ahead at what's gonna to happen to them and their families next year, that's perfectly justified. We all think like that, we're all human beings, we're worried about what's gonna to happen to us and our family and our friends a year from now. Politicians are thinking what's gonna happen in the next four years, because they're not gonna get reelected unless they turn things around in four years. But I think it's only the time binders who are thinking, well, what's gonna happen in the next 100 or 200 years? Because I guarantee you, 100 years from now, Nobody is gonna be talking about Hillary's emails. <laughs> That's gonna be in the history books with the Credit Mobile scandal and the Teapot Dome scandal. And because we're time bonders, there's probably in a, lot of, a lot of people in this room who know what the Credit Mobile scandal was and the Teapot Dome scandal was. But outside in the real world where the people are in time binders, those are like nonsense words. Also, nobody, 100 years from now, nobody's gonna care about Billy Bush or how many pussies Donald grabbed. Um, that's gonna be remembered like uh, Grover Cleveland's illegitimate child, or Warren G. Harding's mistress, um, or how many people John F. Kennedy shagged, uh, which evidently was quite a few. Um, sex is always, sex sells, as someone said on the previous panel, and we're always interested in salacious details. What they are gonna be saying in 100 years is, Guys, why were you talking about Hillary's emails when the oceans were rising and the ice caps were melting? Remember when we used to have a state of Florida where there, now there's a set of bunch of small islands? Um, re, remember, you, you're worried about the Syrian refugees. There's like, uh, you know, 100,000 of them, half a million of them. What happens when the entire nations of Micronesia and Polynesia 
and coastal enclaves all over the world go under the waves and we're going to have millions of boat people looking for a place to live. What happens in parts of India are having temperatures of 120 and 130 degrees just in the last year. I, I spent one night in Death Valley and you can't, that, that, there's a reason they call it Death Valley. Uh, <laughs> you can't live for long at 120, 130 degrees is the average uh, temperature. People are going to leave those things and are going to start moving with their families because everybody wants to live and have food and have a life. You can't live at that temperature. So this global warming thing is kind of a big thing. It should have gotten a little more attention in the presidential election. So, but maybe that's because I'm a science fiction guy too and I'm doing these time -wise. Anyway, so those are my rambling thoughts about uh, why I am the way I am and why I feel the way I, I do. And I, I don't know what to do about it except to keep writing and to keep talking and blogging and, and making my points about that. Why don't I throw it open to you for some, some of your questions and Thank you. Uh, my questions aren't going to be about the world and politics. They're mostly going to be about you, since we have you here. Um, the first question is something... Oh, into the mic. The first question is something that we all want to know the answer to. Will the great and powerful turtle be in the Wild Cards TV show? You, we really need Melinda Snodgrass here to answer that. Uh, yes, we have a wildcard TV show that's under development from Universal. Uh, the, the script has not been written yet, so we don't know what characters are in or what characters are out. Uh, you know, the good thing about wildcards is we have a thousand characters. The bad thing about wildcard is we have a thousand characters, and you can't fit them all into any one thing. You know, I'd, ideally, I'd love it if. Uh, we didn't just get one Wild Cards TV show, we got like six of them and had something, you know, like they're doing with the DC Universe with Flash and Supergirl and, you know, it's that yada yada. Or the Marvel Universe with, uh, that uh, they're doing on Netflix with Daredevil and Jessica Jones and, and Luke Cage. Um, but I don't know if they're gonna go that way. But, um, you know, I have this show called Game of Thrones uh, at HBO. <laughs> And uh, HBO has signed me to what's called an overall deal, which means that HBO owns my pale white ass. And uh, <laughs> I can only work for HBO, um, so I cannot participate in the development of wildcards at, uh, at Universal. That's in the hands of Melinda Snodgrass and uh, a fellow named Gregory Novak, who is uh, the producer attached to it. So, um, sadly, Melinda's not here to answer your question. Okay, uh, there is another series that people are interested in. What can you tell us about The Winds of Winter? I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, asked and answered, everybody. Um, you're known for developing complex characters. Um, how do you give them such depth? That's an interesting question, and I think it relates to uh, to what I said to my earlier remarks. Um, you know, I think it's empathy, which, for some reason, I absorbed at a very early age. I, I always asked myself the question: Well, how would it feel if that was me? Um, you know, when, when, when I was a kid and there was all the civil rights things going on in the 50s and 60s in the South and all that, I, and, you know, at first when I was very young, I couldn't even understand it because, as I said, I lived, you know, with, with black people in the apartment next door and up above and all that. And I go, wait a minute, you mean there are places in the United States where I could go in and eat at a lunch counter, but Skip, Skipper and Dolores couldn't go in and eat at a lunch counter? Well, yeah, there is, you know. And I didn't understand that, and, but then I, I went even beyond that, and I asked, well, how would I feel if that was me? And they said, you can't eat at this lunch counter. Well, I would feel bad. I wouldn't like that. And, uh, you know, I obviously I did not have, I was not black, I didn't have uh, the, the black experience, but I could empathize with that experience. And I remember reading, uh, Andre Norton had a, had a book 
um, called uh, Beastmaster, and I think it was Beastmaster, uh, where the, uh, it might be the wrong one, but the, the hero was an American Indian. And there was a lot of stuff in about it, the, the prejudice that he encountered as an American Indian, and the slurs and the put-downs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you're reading that, and of course, Andre Norton was a, like a white woman, her real name was Alice Mary Norton, she was a white woman from Ohio, white woman from Ohio. I don't know if she actually had any Indian blood or if she knew any Indians or anything like that. Um, but up to that point in my life, the only Indians I'd encountered were in on television and films where they were always the enemy who came whooping over the horizon to kill everybody in the wagon train. Um, but that Andre Norton book put me inside the head of an American Indian, and the magic of empathy took place. And while I was reading that book, I was, uh, I think Hostine was his name, Hostine uh, uh, Storm or something like that. I was him, I was experiencing life as him, and I was feeling the injustice of what was being done to him. And I've always tried to keep those things in mind, and when I, when I write, um, when I write from the viewpoint of a woman, I uh, obviously I haven't had those experiences. I've known people who have, but I always try to think, well, how would I feel if I was a woman and this was happening? And I'd want to make my reader feel that when I'm writing from the viewpoint of a dwarf. Obviously, you know, I'm not a dwarf, but I can empathize with how would I feel with with all of that. So, I, you know, I think empathy is always the 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 key uh, to creating any sort of character, you know, even villains. I mean, uh, someone was talking on this last panel and I came at the end about uh, you have to have fully fleshed characters, even the villains. Yes, yes, I mean, the, the Red Skull exists only in comic books and was not one of the greatest heroes anyway. Uh, villains anyway. Uh, nobody gets up in the morning and says, ha what evil can I do today? <laughs> Everybody thinks there's a, there's a reason for um, what they do. Everybody is the hero of their own story. So even when I'm writing from the viewpoint of, of someone who's maybe not the nicest person in the world, like in my book, somebody like Victorian Greyjoy or Theon Greyjoy, um, they think they're justified in what they're doing. They have rationales, they have excuses. They may even think they're doing the moral thing by whatever lights that they've been taught are morality. Um, and I have to get inside their skin for the time that I'm writing from their viewpoint and seeing through their eyes. Okay. Um, you've made New Mexico your home for a long time. I heard that when you first moved to New Mexico, you were involved in the New Mexico Mafia. <laughs> what was your involvement with them? Well, I was the hitman, of course. <laughs> Whenever they needed someone whacked, they called me. <laughs> so, no, there was no molten light. That was just, uh, you know, our the group of writers. New Mexico has a lot of writers. Uh, I don't know how we compare to you guys in Arizona, but I think we have more. None of them were born there, of course. Everybody kind of moved there. Well, Melinda was sort of born there, and uh, maybe Vic Milan, but like people like Roger Selazny and, and me and Fred Saberhagen and uh, many other writers um, were born in various other parts of the world and then at some point discovered New Mexico, ate some green chili, and then we became addicted, and uh, we had no choice but to move down there so we could get our regular supply of green chili. Um, can you tell us a quick story about how they actually came up with the name? Of New Mexico Mafia? Yeah. I didn't come up with it, I don't know. <laughs> okay. There was a lot of mafias in those days. The Milford Mafia was uh, actually, uh, you know, when Damon Knight founded the Milford Writers Conference, um, he had uh, a group of, of writers that he invited every year to, to Milford to critique each other's stories. Damon, I'm not sure how many of you remember Damon or know who he is. Uh, one, I guess. <laughs> Damon was an immensely influential figure in the history of science fiction. Um, 
he was a writer, but it's not as a writer that he was he's was really so influential. It it was uh, really for the other stuff he did. I mean, he he founded the National Fantasy Fan Federation. He founded the Science Fiction Writers of America. He founded the Milford Writers Conference. He helped found the Clarion Workshops. Um, he was always going around founding things, and Damon was a proselytizer. Um, you know, he he had this view that. Uh, you know, we had to break down the walls of the science fiction ghetto, and science fiction had to mature and become more literary. Um, and, you know, he was the, one of the first greatest critics in the field. Uh, you know, before Damon, there was science fiction writers, when they reviewed each other, it was like all praise. It was sort of an unspoken thing well, we're all in this together, and we have to help each other, and, you know, it was the thumper rule. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Um, Damon was not a thumper. He, he came in there and said, no, we're only going to get better if we show uh, what's wrong with these things. And he, he ripped books apart and flayed them in the early 50s, and uh, um, including some giants of the field, like A.E. Van Vogt. I mean, A.E. Van Vogt was never the same when Damon got through with him. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, he, one of the things he founded was this Milford Writers Conference, where he invited particularly some established writers, also some young writers, to get together and criticize with all this, with this idea in mind that we had to become better, we had to become more literary, we had to uh, do that. And there were certain other writers in the field primarily older writers and more conservative writers, who didn't like this. And it, it, it became more, it became more heated when uh, the old wave, new wave war began, which again, I don't know how many of you remember that, but the late 60s, early 70s, there was a movement called the new wave in science fiction, and then there were the older writers who didn't like that, and they were the old wave, and there was a big fights about it. And uh, also Damon founded SFWA and Nebula Awards, and a lot of the Nebula Awards went to writers who went to Milford, and uh, who, who uh, taught at Clarion, and uh, who were associated with the new wave and published in Damon's anthology, Orbit. So the old wave writers, the people who weren't part of that, started deriding Damon and his group who went to Milford as the Milford Mafia. So it was actually the enemies of Damon and Milford who coined the term Milford Mafia. Um, but Damon just laughed and took it happily and started calling themselves that. So, so we've had these fights and feuds in science fiction, you know, they go all the way back. I, admittedly, the present one, which uh, with the puppies, is probably the ugliest and nastiest and worst we've seen. Um, but it's not the first by any means. I mean, you can go back to the Futurians and the Exclusion Act and the old wave and the new wave and all of this stuff. And we we may be a family, but we're kind of a quarrelsome family. We're <laughs> we're just always a crazy uncle that you got to deal with. Yes. Um, one last question before we have questions from the audience. You have been characterized in a lot of memes. Do you have any favorites? What? what? Give me that one again. You've been characterized in a lot of memes. Um, yes. Do you, do you have any favorites, or would you just like to continue on? No, I don't. I'm, I'm you know, I write on a DOS machine <laughs> with WordStar 4.0. I don't get into that whole meme thing. I know I have a presence on Twitter and Facebook, but that's really my minions. I, I blog, that's about as advanced as I get, and then people pick it up and run with it, so. Okay. All right, we have a microphone in the middle, so come up to the microphone if you have a question, and I'll do the best to uh, answer that. Hello. Hi. What was your inspiration for creating the um, Society of Baseless Myth? And was there anything in history that inspired it, or was it just a plot thing with Arya that you thought about, or what was your original inspiration? My original inspiration for creating the Faceless Men, uh, I don't know, I, I um, you know, it's a common trope of fantasy that you have, like, the Guild of Assassins. I was hardly the first one to invent the Guild of Assassins. Um, you know, 
that's largely a, a fantasy trope. There's not much evidence for that in history. Well, the, the one evidence is you did actually have a group called the Assassins <laughs> who were uh, in the Middle East, and there was a guy called the Old Man of the Mountain who would send forth his assassins to, uh, to kill people uh, in the Middle East, where they have been killing people for many, many centuries. Um, but they were not like fantasy guilds of assassins. So I decided to put my own spin on it, you know. I actually came up with several different guilds of assassins, not only the Faceless Men, but the Sorrowful Men and, and all that. And uh, there's a little bit in there in the, uh, in the philosophy of uh, the Faceless Men is, you know, they're, in some senses they're a death cult and it's a religious basis which I kind of thought about and extrapolated from that. I'm surprised we don't have more death cults in the real world because it just seems to me that if you're gonna worship something death is a pretty good thing because you know like we have all these religions that promise you life everlasting. None of them ever deliver on it. Everybody in all the other religions that are promise you worth dies anyway. So the death cult is the one that wins, you know? <laughs> the death cult can really deliver death. It is like, come and worship with us and you will die. Well, yeah, <laughs> you, you probably will. <laughs> so what the hell? Uh, so I, I took with that and, and ran with it. Yeah. Is that ask, Westeros on your address? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, I know you have quite a lot of Dunkin' Egg series uh, books planned. Uh, are we ever going to see Tansel too tall again? Are we going to find out what happens to her? <laughs> well, that would be telling. <laughs> but I think there's a good chance, yes. Yay. So whenever I first read your series, I of course um, sided with Daenerys since she has land originally. But I'm a history teacher and I'm teaching my students about the westward expansion. And as I'm teaching them about how the, the American citizens took over the land, I'm siding with us because we were able to use brute force. And if whoever wins the land is the original ownership. So my question is, is it the with your opinion, not trying to get your opinion on how the story will end, but even with that and historically, is it the person who dominates it and with brute force, or is it the people who originally founded the land have ownership? Well, um, <laughs> you know, human beings through all of history have been trying to sort this out, uh, who has the right to the land. I mean, how, how far back do land claims go? Um, you know, you go far enough back and all the lands were Neanderthal man and, you know, then he gets wiped out by, by Cro-Mangan and, uh, or interbreeds with Cro-Mangan. Theories have now uh, diverged on that point. Um, and then civilizations come and go. I mean, you look at the British Isles and, you know, in history, historical terms, you had the Picts and the Scots uh, there, there originally and the Celts. You might even have older groups than that if you believe the legends that Tuatha de Danann and the Firbolg were based on actual peoples who existed there before the Celts came. But then after the Celts, you know, the Romans come in and they have their thing and they leave their deposits and then after the Romans you get the Angles and the Saxons. And after the Angles and the Saxons you get the Normans. Uh, the Vikings come in, the Danes, they have a influence, they get a few kings. So history is history is written in blood and the land doesn't belong to anyone except who takes it and what they do with the preceding inhabitants. If there's one thing history has taught us, it's that. Um, I would like to think that, uh, that Gordy Dixon was right and that a moral evolution is gone and that, uh, you know, 100 years, 200 years, 500 years will we will arrive at the point where history is no longer written in blood, but is is uh, you know written in in ink or phosphors on a computer screen again, and uh, where we are all Terrans, and you know some of us maybe. Well, you look at these DNA tests on ancestry.com. I think we're all mongrels anyway. We just sometimes don't like to admit it to 
to each other. Um, did you say mongrels or mongrels? Mongrels. Yes. <laughs> uh, mutts. We're mutts. <laughs> the human race is mutts, and we need to become more mutts. Um, all these, uh, you know, cries to uh, France for the French, Germans for the Germans, America for the Americans, uh, all of these are throwbacks, atavistic, xenophobic things, fear of the other, fear of differences, uh, and hopefully eventually we'll leave this all behind. And, and I think we will eventually, because uh, the more people live together, the more they fuck with each other, and, uh, and children are born, and all the uh, interbreeding <laughs> occurs, whether we pass laws against it or horrified by it, and, and the cultural traditions happen, and people move into your neighborhoods and found a new restaurant, and you discover you like that food, and you meet the owners, and their children go to school with your children, and it's all, everything comes together, all these things, and I think that's the future there. Even in Westeros, of course, I've tried to indicate a, a sort of British history with the Westeros. I mean, you have the children in the forest first, and they're the only people there, and they really are a distinct species, and the giants, who are another distinct species. And then human beings come in, the first men, and of course, it's written in blood, so there's a lot of war, they kill each other, they form a, a, a treaty, but then uh, here comes another invasion with the Andals coming in, and you know, eventually the Targaryens arrive with their dragons, and having a dragon really helps things. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Hi, hello. All right. As you probably know, a lot of writers reflect themselves in their characters or put certain aspects of their character. And I'm wondering what character in Game of Thrones did you most put yourself into? Which one most personified you? Tyrion. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I am, however, taller. <laughs> and, you know, those quips that Tyrion tosses off at a moment's notice take me weeks to come up with. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm one of these guys, oh, I could have said something really witty there. I think of it three weeks later. <laughs> um, hi, I'm a huge fan of Haviland Tuff. Ah, cool. And uh, and I, I noticed, or I, it seems like a lot of the stories uh, are, are very clearly pointing at different society issues. And I wondered if you're going to do any more of them. That's it. We're going to see more of him. Um, you know, I would like, I have ideas for another 20 tough stories, uh, but uh, I'm kind of busy with the Sice and Fire thing right now. So I don't know when I'll get around to writing them. Uh, at, at some point, um, sure. I, I even had at one point a contract for a second tough book. You know, the first collection was called Tough Voyaging, and the next one was going to be called Twice as Tough. Um, I, I would get that. But I, I, I never wrote the stories, and I got involved in this other stuff, and I eventually bought out the contract by paying the publisher back. But, uh, you know, man, someday I'd love to do that. It was a fun, a fun character to write. Um, and those stories were kind of fun. They're a little lighter than most of uh, my, my stuff. Well, they're not really a romp. There are like entire worlds that are destroyed and stuff. But uh, it's interesting what's considered light entertainment and what's not considered light entertainment. Uh, I, I've, I, I've uh, thought about that uh, sometimes, you know, you, you kill one character that the, the, the people know and love, uh, and you get this reputation for being bloody, but you, you wipe out millions of people and no one blinks, you know? It's like um, we look at Schindler's List as, oh, this incredibly dark and gripping film about the Holocaust, and. You know, we see people die, uh, you know, who are killed, who are shot, and all that. Um, and we consider Star Wars a light romp, but like in Star Wars, they blow up the entire planet of Alderaan. Like, before the story goes, oh, I just felt a great disturbance in the forest, you know? Fifty billion people have just been snuffed out. And what's the next act? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's odd the way, you know, one death is a tragedy, and... 50 billion deaths are a statistic, as, uh, as I think someone once said. Maybe more of the immediacy. So, 
there are horrible things that happen in tough stories, but they're in the realm of statistics. So. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Um, I'm. Uh, I've been an independent author for about six years. Big fan of your work. Thank you. Down, as you can tell. <laughs> um, I saw. I, I follow your blog as well. You're not a blog, and I just wanted to know if you have. I can see that you're an ally to some indie authors. Do you have any advice? Because there, there's a persona there between the traditionally published authors and the indie authors. What was your take on that? Do you have any advice for up-and-coming authors in the sci-fi world? Well, um, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the first of all, I'm not an expert in independent publishing. I've, right. never, I've never done it myself. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, what you would call a traditionally yes. published author. Um, I do think that independent publishing is probably the wave of the future. You know, we see the traditional publishers um, struggling in some sense. You know, there's <laughs> fewer and fewer of them. They tend to merge, you know, the big six of a few years ago are now the big five, and of course, they used to be the big 20, or, you know, the big 10 and the medium-sized 30, and uh, the slightly smaller 57. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of things that have to be sorted out about independent publishing. I mean, before there was independent publishing, there was something called vanity publishing, where you paid to have your own book published, and of course, there was a there were occasional success stories with vanishing, vanity publishing, which the vanity publishers would always trumpet, oh, here's a guy who published with us and he became a bestseller. But for everyone like that, there were 10,000 people who published with a vanity publisher and they, they got 5,000 copies of their book, which are still in their garage, uh, because there was no distribution, there was no support. And indeed, most of the books belonged in someone's garage because they were terrible. Uh, there, there were no gatekeepers. Uh, traditional publishing has a series of gatekeepers where, you know, the stuff that's really bad gets rejected. There are no gatekeepers with independent publishing, which means undoubtedly there are some good books being published independently. There's also a tremendous amount of crap. Um, some of it is like semi-crap and some of it is like totally, totally crap. Um, and I... I know people want to write, they want to express their opinions, they want to get their dreams out, but sometimes it's it's sad. I mean, I, I go to conventions and I see people sitting with a table in the dealer's room with piles of their independently published book in front of them, desperately trying to sell a copy to anyone who goes by and people are sort of hurrying by and not making eye contact because then they <laughs> feel obliged to purchase the, the book. Um, but I also see successes, and there's certainly you, Howie, you know, mm -hmm. was a was a great success with that, and certainly the, the distribution is is all. And I know friends of mine who are established authors, Walter John Williams, uh, for example, has recently put all of his backlist book on uh, available as independent publications, and he told me recently he's making like forty thousand dollars a year from it. Well, that's pretty damn good for a bunch of backlist books and if it keeps up year after year. But, but what's important in his case is he established himself first as a writer published by traditional channels, and he's still doing his new books in traditional publications. So those are the locomotives that are driving the train, and then his old backlist books are being pulled along with the train. Um, so it's a whole new game. I mean, I don't, I don't know the rules of this game to advise you. I, I know the rules of my game, and some people win and some people lose, uh, and you can lose for a long time and then win. Um, I mean, my career has bottomed out at least twice where I thought I would be selling real estate, um, but I kept, kept at it. I mean, you, you have to keep when you have a game where some people win and some people lose, the important thing is to keep playing yeah. because you can't win if you don't play. Yeah. And that may be true for independent publishing too, but when everybody is independently publishing, how are you going to know which books are good and which books are not good? Um, how are you going to 
get the word out there about your books? How are people going to know what to review? I mean, there's so much of it. It's it's a whole different game, and right. I don't know. But well, thank you. Good good luck with it. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question, though. Are you did you choose independent publishing because uh, you yeah, preferred I, it to traditional publishing, or did you try traditional publishing, get nowhere, and then turn to independent? I did not. I did like three weeks of research. I didn't sleep for hours. I just I couldn't decide, and I never even submitted to an agent. I said indie is my way. You know, you make seventy percent of your profits, and as opposed to possibly 3% traditionally published. I mean, it just depends. I mean, unless you're you <laughs> or Stephen King. Um, there was just, there was a lot of factors. You get to control how you get edited and just the whole process. It's, well, you do have control. You it's know, a lot faster but as you, well. On the other hand, you have to do all these other jobs, like you, your own copy editing and your own editing, and you have to get to cover yourself, and mm -hmm. and uh, you know yada yada all of that all of that stuff, uh, right. promotion and publicity. Uh, traditional publishing, you have other people doing those things for you who are maybe better at these yes. things than you are. Absolutely. Um, so it was it was just a choice I made, and um, a lot, they, I just heard a lot of hybrids. A lot of indie publishers or indie authors get picked up from the big six or the big right. five because they do so well on Amazon. And just a hope of mine, we'll see. All right, well. Eventually. Good luck with it. Thank you. Um, this is gonna have to be the last question, so thank you very much. Hi, um, as a fellow avid reader, I was wondering what, who some of your favorite characters you've read over the years in particularly fantasy literature, but literature in general. Who stands out to you? My favorite characters, yes. not writers. No, characters. Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Of course, I'm a huge uh, Tolkien fan, and so, you know, the, the characters from there, you know, Frodo and, and uh, Sam and Gandalf and Aragorn and, and Boromir, I was like great characters, so I, I have a thing for Boromir. Poor brave Boromir. Uh, <laughs> got arrows in him. Uh, <laughs> I read um, like mysteries, detective fiction as well. Big fan of the Travis McGee books uh, by John Day McDonald. One of my one of my favorite characters, uh, Travis and his wounded birds. Uh, and uh, of course, I read mainstream literature. The, the Great Gatsby is one of my all-time great books ever written, and uh, I, I reread that one uh, every few years. Um, in science fiction fantasy, I mentioned Paul Anderson earlier. Uh, you know, he had a, a character called Nicholas Van Ryn um, that uh, I love. There were a whole series of books about him. The first one was called uh, The Man Who Counts, although when it was published, it was serialized in analog, uh, astounding back then, as The Man Who Counts. When it was published as a novel, they changed it to War of the Wingmen. But, uh, <laughs> It's still a, a terrific book, and the first one to feature that character who came back many times. Um, who else do I like? Uh, oh, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting away from science fiction and fantasy. Flashman, George MacDonald Frazier's Flashman books, historical adventures about, uh, and that's interesting, because Flashman was originally introduced in Tom Brown's school days about a, a you know, Victorian uh, kid who went to a boarding school at, uh, where was Eaton or something like that, and Tom Brown, and where he was bullied unmercifully by this cad called Flashman. And uh, that became a classic of Victorian literature and the basis of several mini-series on PBS and all that. But uh, George MacDonald Frazier said, well, what happened to this Flashman guy after he was expelled for drunkenness from, uh, from the school? And he wrote this whole series of marvelous adventures about how Flashman enters the army, and he, he remains a bully, a cad, a lech, a, a, a liar, a scoundrel, um, but a very charming one. And he, he, he's involved in every war of the uh, of the 18th and 19th centuries. Usually, ends up running away with his tail between his legs, and yet gets acclaimed a hero and gets another medal and a promotion at the end of it. And the books are just a delight, and also a rich, rich source of historical. Um, truth, you know, you learn things about history you never learned before. 
So I know we're out of time. I could go on for another hour, but uh, you know, I love to read. I love characters here. So uh, anyway, thank you all for coming. I'm sorry uh, we didn't get to all the questions. But I will be around. I'll be, you know, sitting by a pool. I'll be in the con suite and things like that. So, feel free to uh, talk to me. I don't, I don't bite usually. Uh, and uh, enjoy the con. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.